One example was in 2016, 2017, when the whole tensions were rising in North Korea. Many banks said, for your non-profit, we cannot bank for you. You are in compliance with sanctions. You've done nothing wrong, but you are just more risk than it's worth it for me. I remember our bank account was shut down in the US and the bank had returned the money to us as a check. We couldn't open another bank account because everywhere you go, they'll be like, why are you opening a bank account? And you to say, because the last bank shut down my account. All the banks would then just be like, oh, okay, you know, high risk. I don't want to do it for whatever small amount of money you have. So I was running around with this paper check. I was going from branch to branch. I was literally crying at the branch and people were just like, no, we can't do anything about this. We cannot cash your check because you don't have a bank account to cash it into. Uh, so you feel what it was like to be locked out of a system, to be excluded. Eventually, we managed to cash the check because I went to a payday lender. You are in this line with all these people that you felt kind of like represented a whole bunch of stereotypes. You could see the single mom, the guy in front of you shaking, probably on drugs. <laughs> I was in a very rough neighborhood. And after a lot of discussion, they are finding out, okay, you know, we're willing to cash a check. They took a huge percentage out of it. But that was my first experience, knowing what it means to live on the margin, to be excluded. We talk about underdogs in, at the start of the show. Now I felt like, okay, this is what being an underdog in life feels like. To be excluded from systems, to be at the control of other people. We essentially make decisions about how you live and how you do things by virtue of the infrastructure they control. Can you imagine someday you wake up and you cannot use any bank? You cannot transfer money. You cannot use credit cards. You cannot park your money or send it to someone digitally. That is very scary and it does happen to people for good or bad reasons. That was also for me understanding why blockchain web tree is important in so many ways. You realize that going through all these intermediaries means ceding control or power to someone else. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 93, part two of the So This Is My Way podcast. I'm your and producer, Lingya, and today's guest is Jeffrey C. If you haven't already listened to part one of Jeffrey's story, please do. In part one, we covered his childhood, how he ended up founding the largest, most successful social enterprise in North Korea. And he actually peels back the layers to show what North Korea really is like behind all the posturing and narratives put forward by traditional media outlets. For instance, why are North Korean women so entrepreneurial? How do they think about concepts like the rule of law? What constitutes a North Korean power couple? And how did Jeffrey find partners, raise funds, and build trust in a close society like North Korea? And as for this part, we continue with Jeffrey's journey, this time into the world of Web3. How did he get into it? How has his extensive working exposure in places like North Korea and Vietnam influence his understanding of a medium like Bitcoin. What is the problem he's trying to solve with Bogo? Why is he currently working with the Kazakhstan government? And so much more. But before we start, if you've been enjoying this podcast, could you please take a moment just to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review? Every review really helps this podcast to grow and reach a wider audience. Now, are you ready for part two? Let's go. Welcome to the So This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life. And here's your host, Ling Ya. What I found so fascinating about your profile is that you were working so extensively in North Korea and that you focused very deep in the Web3 space. The first question would be, how did you first hear about this thing called Web3 and yep. decide that this was not a scam and something you wanted to go into. 
I think it's very interesting because working in places with no rule of law, very limited governance, very low trust, helps you think a lot about the value of blockchain. For most people in societies where you have a good rule of law, you don't face these issues. I mean, there will always be people who are left behind, but for most people, it's a toy, right? It's not something that you need. So interesting the way you said that, because it reminds me of so many people who would say, I go to Vietnam and there's tremendous adoption of crypto because the value yeah. of their currency is so fluid. Yeah. Yeah. So it's infusing gaps, right? Infusing gaps in governance. I now run a startup. We just came out of the Reason Why Combinator program. POCO focused on helping people build DAOs or decentralized autonomous organizations. So what it is, is more collaboration between different parties in a way that's more trusted. A lot of them obviously use it too because they want to conduct some form of enterprise payments in an accountable manner on crypto rails. But how I got to this journey was that when I first started working on North Korea issue, I was also an affiliate researcher at MIT. Our work started because of a currency reform in North Korea. The government said, change your old currency to the new currency and you can only cap it at $500 for each person. So what it meant is that anyone who was involved in business lost their savings or their income. And I was at MIT and I was talking to other people and said, hey, you know, how do we protect entrepreneurs from this problem? And at the time, this was 2012. Coin was not on everyone's radar, but someone was just like, oh, you check out this thing called Bitcoin, you know, might be really interesting. So I read everything I could about blockchain. I thought it was like super fascinating. And I thought no one is ever going to buy Bitcoin. The reason why I thought that way was I thought the technology was amazing, but I believe money is money because people believe it is money, right? It is a belief system. And I didn't know if the prerequisites for Bitcoin becoming something like this would exist. So that was my first exposure. We didn't end up doing anything with the technology, but then in 2017, the idea of blockchain really stood with me. So in 2017, I joined a team that was spinning out this protocol called Zilliqa. I joined the parent company as the chief strategy officer. And then we spun out this protocol called Zilliqa with the National University of Singapore and got it up to fairly successful, decent ecosystem there, like a two, three billion dollar coin cap protocol. And then I also helped them establish an exchange that was regulated and licensed by the Central Bank of Singapore that was trading essentially private securities in a regulated manner. So that's a bit of my journey. Along the way, there are many periods where I saw the value of this alternate system that people could operate on. One example was in 2016, 2017, when the whole tensions were rising in North Korea, many banks said, for your nonprofit, we cannot bank for you. You are in compliance with sanctions. You've done nothing wrong, but you are just more risk than it's worth it for me. I remember our bank account was shut down in the US and the bank had returned the money to us as a check. We couldn't open another bank account because Everywhere you go, they'll be like, why are you opening a bank account? And you to say, because the last bank shut down my account. All the banks would then just be like, oh, okay, you know, high risk. I don't want to do it for whatever small amount of money you have. So I was running around with this paper check. I was going from branch to branch. I was literally crying at the branch. And people were just like, no, we can't do anything about this. We cannot cash your check because you don't have a bank account to cash it into. Uh, so you feel what it was like to be locked out of a system, to be excluded. Eventually, we managed to cash the check because I went to a payday lender. You are in this line with all these people that you felt kind of like represented a whole bunch of stereotypes. You could see the single mom, the guy in front of you shaking, probably on drugs. <laughs> I was in a very rough neighborhood. And after a lot of discussion, they were finding out, okay, you know, we're willing to cash a check. They took a huge percentage out of it. But that was my first experience, knowing what it means to live on the margin, to be excluded. We talk about underdogs in, at the start of the show. Now I felt like, okay, this is what being an underdog in life feels like. 
to be excluded from systems, to be at the control of other people. We essentially make decisions about how you live and how you do things by virtue of the infrastructure they control. Can you imagine someday you wake up and you cannot use any bank? You cannot transfer money. You cannot use credit cards. You cannot park your money or send it to someone digitally. That is very scary. And it does happen to people for good or bad reasons. That was also for me understanding why blockchain web three is important in so many ways. You realize that going through all these intermediaries means ceding control or power to someone else. I go to Vietnam and work with startups and we've seen incredible startups in Vietnam in the play to earn space. Startups like Axe Infinity, Wufan Games, Titan Arena, they've managed to scale globally fairly successfully as a Vietnamese startup in a very quick span of time. If you were to launch a traditional startup in Vietnam, there are many things that poses barriers for you. An example is startups here cannot directly get access to the Stripe payment platform. So they have to create a company in Singapore. They have to create a bank account in Singapore. Very often, the banks there treat it as high risk. So they might end up shutting down your bank account and then you're cut out of payments. Or I help a startup here who Facebook kept blocking them from doing that and setting up a business account. They were a chatbot maker. They had done nothing wrong. So I put him in touch with a Facebook manager in Silicon Valley. He looked at what they were doing and he said, there's no reason why we should be blocking you. But you have to go through all these platforms in order to access your market because that's just the nature of the internet today. I see the value of this whole Web3 community of, uh, and the ethos of disintermediation uh, of self-sovereignty. I think it can bring value, especially to communities that are marginalized. So when we are at Poco, when we are creating our DAOs, we talk to a lot of users in places like Latin America, India, Vietnam. And I believe there is a strong use case in emerging markets that in some ways should be stronger than places with a good rule of law high degree of trust and abundant capital in the startup ecosystem. The idea that ethos behind blockchain is very beautiful. I mean, who doesn't want to cut out the middleman? Who doesn't want to have full control of what we're doing? I was speaking to a lawyer who works at Avalanche and he said that I'm all for users taking more responsibility for their actions completely. But at the same time, I spoke to Phil Libin, who co-founded Evernote, and he said, I think blockchain is complete bull because in what world can it be fair that you can never turn back a decision that's been made? Because scams are everywhere. If someone comes in, puts a gun to your head and say, sign all this to me, you can never change it back. No one can ever, ever do anything. And the idea that it can never overturn something so unjust is insane. His thought at the time was, the idea is amazing, but maybe the future is not in this thing called blockchain. Yeah. And I wonder what your thoughts were on this. I think it's a good point, question of like, how do we build open systems? Can we build open systems without, by true intermediaries? I don't know. I mean, what we've learned over the years is if you think of all these brands we used to trust so much, like Facebook, everyone's like, oh, you know, they're so amazing. They're a startup everyone looks to be. And then suddenly they became the villain. They're like, oh, look what they're doing with your data and all that. It's and, almost like an inevitable cycle. Like all be tight, will be hated at some point. Yeah. And I think there are places where there's a lot of trust in governments and over time people have lost trust. There are places where trust is still on the rise. So you have a lot of variety in the world. It's very hard to say that there's one system that works for everyone, for a planet of 7 billion over people. I believe that there are places where you don't need a blockchain. There are places where you have systems that are by and large fair and serves most people in a pretty decent manner. And there are places where you don't. And I think 
where Web3 technology come in, where this intermediation comes in is that it provides an option for people. It's not meant to replace monetary systems. It's not meant to replace every single organization. It's not meant to replace every single Web2 product, but it will be a huge compliment for many people that need something indirect. They don't want to be controlled by other platforms. I think you will find a space among that community. I wanted to talk more about DAOs. As Bankless said, DAOs are growing exponentially and you have dived straight into it. And that's precisely what Poco is about. For those who aren't familiar with this concept, decentralized autonomous organizations, what are they and what can they actually do? We actually take a very broad definition of DAOs. We see it as what we call blockchain-based companies. There's a number of elements. DAO stands for Decentralized Autonomous Organization, which in this space is kind of funny because most of them are not necessarily decentralized, quite often not autonomous, but in organizations. So where does the DNA come from? The idea is that decision-making will be decentralized. So it comes almost like a voting community. Execution is autonomous. I do not need to trust other people to be able to execute certain decisions as a community. Normally, decisions involving capital and the use of treasury or other changes to a protocol and so on. So in terms of technology, we're not there yet in terms of how we deliver on these things. But what we see among the people who reach out to us is a mix of things, right? So some people are like enterprises who have a very decentralized base of customers or a decentralized team. And they say, I want to move my payments onto crypto rails. I want to essentially do my banking on crypto rails. That's one example. Then we have people who say, I want tokens to represent some form of ownership or interaction within a community. And I'm organizing my processes, my organization through the use of a token format. And then you have people say, oh, I really want decentralized decision-making. I think that's actually quite a minority. But you find that the aspects, they are decentralized, right? Whether it's in terms of self-custody of money or in the sense of like, I want my ownership records, my membership records to be spread out among more people and allow them to participate in new ways. So those are DAOs. Think of them as companies that very often come with your own bank, your own payment processor, and then some form of like way to track ownership and to make decisions collectively as an organization. And there are also many different types of DAOs as well, investment, VC, community. What is the difference between, say, an investment DAO and a traditional VC? I've been involved with a few VC type DAOs. The investment DAO can go for something very simple where we want to spin up, say, you and me and a few other friends, we're going to spin up a special purpose vehicle and we will collectively make decisions on the assets we buy or what we do with those assets. So that's an investment DAO. And you can go all the way to like VC type DAOs where the idea is people want to create a bit of an ecosystem where people come together and contribute collectively to decision-making around, say, what to invest in. They contribute their knowledge into the pool in a way that normally has some form of reward mechanism that then incentivize people for their contributions. So they want to create kind of a bit of an internal economy for the knowledge, for leads, for expertise, for due diligence, and so on. So those are experiments that I've been involved in and seeing take place. I would say the difference is that a VC is traditionally very hierarchical. You're a very core set of partners that make the call. VC DAO is trying to create new ways, in a sense, to crowdsource knowledge, expertise, and effort to achieve its purpose. So the way that a DAO functions really issues governance tokens, and it could be you have one token, one voting power. 
you mentioned something interesting, the reward mechanism. Can you give some examples of what that looks like within a DAO? Yeah. So for example, I'm involved in this DAO called VC Tree. It's set up by a bunch of people from this fellowship called the Kaufman Fellows. They're all VCs in their professional life. And they issue a token that allows for voting. And the idea was that, oh, if you say, for example, I need a reference for this founder that we are due diligencing. Does anyone know someone or all that? And I put out a bounty, say I'm going to give 20,000 VC3 tokens for anyone who can get a good reference in so that we understand whether this is someone worth investing in or not. So that's an example. Or say like we want someone to be involved in some aspects of treasury management. And here's some tokens that we're issuing so that people have an incentive to do so. I think in terms of the value of the token, everyone is still trying to figure it out, right? It's like sometimes we're like, well, what exactly are these things for? It's interesting, you know, it's an experiment. But I think a lot of this are still work in progress. We are trying with different approaches around this. But I do believe there's a strong value to rethinking how we manage and own organizations and how we involve a broader set of stakeholders in owning what we build. Traditionally, when I think of giving up equity, it is very tedious and time-consuming and there's very low level of trust. If I just go out and say, hey, let's go sign a safe note, an investment note with like 2,000 people. Say, I want my customers, I want my community, I want influencers, I want all these different stakeholders. But what you can do with the token format is that you have a universal language that people in the space understand. Whether you're from Argentina, Vietnam, Kazakhstan, Europe, US, people start to understand the token format and its relationship to the entity. And they can say, hey, I want this 2,000 people from day one to be a part of this community, to own part of it and be involved in it in some way. And I can give them tokens as a way for them to get there. So it's very powerful as a go-to-market mechanism. It is very hard to do that with traditional instruments today. This is not really how you think of a public company because it could be just very early days, right? This could be like a day one company or a day 90 company, but it is able to build that broader kind of mobilization for people. So I believe it's creating new ways of approaching the market. And I think trying to fit it into a definition of what we understand today can end up missing the point about some of these new technologies. I, when I first heard about the concept of DAOs, I thought it was just fascinating, the broadening of allowing anyone to be involved in the running of, say, a company in a way that you have never been able to. But then as I got more involved and I play this play-to-earn game, they have this DAO and you vote on Snapshot and they give you some kind of reward as a return. I realized that I wasn't so much caring about the proposals. I just wanted the rewards and I just don't care. I just select one answer. And it yep. brings me to mind the fact the, the question of how do you ensure, I suppose, the quality of the kind of responses you're getting from the people? Because is it even possible to do that? Yeah, I think there are many people trying to solve for it in, in different ways. I think the one that I do like, and we also kind of like playing around in our mind in terms of down the road. One thing I'm very big on is this idea of taxation with representation. How do you fund public goods in a way that's aligned with the preferences of users and be more directly engaged with them? And I think the idea behind it is that one thing that I like is tokens that are earned. A lot of people who buy are speculators and the value they bring is like liquidity or, or price discovery and all that. But beyond that, they're not necessarily the most involved in a community. Right? So everyone wants to move where it's like, hey, this plutocracy where I just go in and buy a bunch of tokens to people who say, oh, you are involved. And there's a way for me to measure that you are actually involved in the way I want you to be, that you are bringing value in a certain manner. 
And as a result of that, you can unlock your tokens or achieve your tokens. I think that's one model that I think, you know, I like to see more where people are rewarded for doing things that are very much in line with bettering the organization or the community and earning those tokens rather than buying it. There are many other ways people try to solve these problems, like reputation, different ways of voting. Yeah. So lots of experimentation trying to figure it out. The other big problem is these things take a lot of time. How many side jobs and day jobs can you handle at what time? I think we do need to think a bit about how exactly we want people to be involved in the DAOs to understand if it's the right mechanism or how to design the right mechanisms. You mentioned VC3 earlier. You're also involved in the Bankless DAO, the Orange DAO. Have you noticed any particular hallmarks that make a quote-unquote successful DAO? Honestly, the ones that we work with, we work a lot more with like startups, right? They're, not, they're very established, very highly decentralized DAOs. And most of people are just building a company or a community or a cause. For them, a big part of what they want to use is just tokens as a way to build interaction, or they want to use crypto for some form of payment or fundraising. I would say success is very different, right? From what some of these people are doing and what other people are doing. So for them, there will still always be a core set of management team that have to drive the thing forward. They may have decentralization as a longer term objective progressively moving towards it, or they may not have that in mind. We think of it as like blockchain-based companies. They are successful in the sense that they achieve the objective, right? They want to, in a sense, own their own bank account, their own payment processor. They want to accept and send payments to crypto because they believe in it. It helps them save costs in some way or gives more options to their users. Then you have people who are trying to build something to experiment with new models of delivering a service or work. We have looked at DeFi protocols that have actually been very successful in the sense that, you know, they survived the latest meltdown in fairly good shape compared to their centralized, regulated and registered entities, counterparts. And so those have been successful in their own way. They've shown robustness to certain situations. Does it work for every kind of business? Of course, may not always be the case, but I think it points towards the potential of what we could unlock here. One of the things that I noticed, which was a big issue, when I first saw this thing of DAOs is the fact that, well, okay, this is very exciting, but what's the legal structure behind it? Doesn't mean that everyone is open to unlimited liability. How do you own assets? And that is precisely the issue that you are solving. And you also work with the Kazakhstan government as well. And I would love to hear how that happens. We had just finished our Y Combinator demo day and we did our subsequent fundraise. We saw that a lot of DAOs, your regulations in this space was just getting heavier and heavier. And I think it's important for anyone in this space to have a view and thinking towards it. And it's not because it's so early, it's very expensive and needlessly complicated and intimidating to most people, not just doing DAOs, but just anything in this space, right? It's getting like, oh, there's so much regulations that I need to think of or regulatory uncertainty. And so we say it's better that the DAOs have a legal form. I mean, they need a legal form for many things, right? They need to sign contracts. They need to have limited liability. They should have a tax residence. Otherwise, every government would say, oh, how do we tax these people? They need to have accountability. And I think in a way, legal structure provides that bridge between your off-chain legal world and what happens on-chain. So that was what I believe was important. At the same time, we were talking about this with creating DAOs. It was just incredibly expensive and complex. It was incredibly intimidating and complex because they have to consult so many different lawyers and no one really knows what's going on either. So you spend a lot of fees trying to work out what could potentially work. I feel like instead of making entrepreneurship cheaper, this DAO thing has made it 20x more expensive. 
So when I was in Singapore on the way back from Silicon Valley, I attended a dinner organized by Eric Schmidt, the former chairman of Google. I met the vice minister for Kazakhstan, a lady called Asel, who is incredible in that she's not only an accomplished policymaker, but she's also a programmer from Oxford. And she was very interested. So, you know, as Tatanga Daos, she paid a lot of attention. She was very curious about it. She said, how do you provide something of relevance to this kind of companies and organizations? So I said, okay, I did some homework and she told me about this special zone that they had created. That was modeled after the Dubai International Financial Center. It's called the Astana International Financial Center. And we said, oh, can we do something there for DAOs or for treasury or payment management in the Web3 space? So I went and talked to a lot of regulators to understand the landscape there, how supportive they are Web3. And, you know, I felt it was the right environment. We could provide a lightweight legal structure that would service DAOs. And it made sense too, because this is such a global space. I believe that many of the technology stack sits on decentralized technology that's self-sovereign. So you don't really need to know a place to go to a place that much. You should be able to register anywhere as long as it provides the bare minimum of what you need as a legal structure, but still have full trust in what you're doing. So I think this was a very good experiment. At the same time, they themselves were experimenting with some DAOs for providing public goods and services. So I thought it was a great place to try this. We started incorporating DAOs in the Astana International Financial Center and we worked the regulators to create a bit of understanding and a pathway for this kind of entities to be created. We also saw companies from Latin America that wanted to do crypto payments and treasury solutions. It is very difficult to do it in environments where the regulation is changing all the time. So in some places, crypto is goods and services. You get a good and services tax. Sometimes it's capital gains that you have to pay. When do you have to pay, you know, when you transfer from one wallet to another or under certain incident, it creates a lot of uh, uncertainty and complexity. So we said, can we provide a solution that at least simplifies some of this complexity so people can focus on what they need to do instead of spending their time thinking about the lawyers, they have to engage crypto accounting experts who are in very rare supply to figure out all of these nuances in environments that are changing very rapidly. So we are providing that environment with the solutions that we're providing, not just from a technology perspective, but also from a regulatory perspective. I played around with Pokemon a little bit. It's very easy, very straightforward. Put your name, select what kind of DAO you want to create. Suddenly you have options, how many tokens that you want, what do you want to call it, you can mint it. So does that mean I already have a legal entity? How does it work? The idea was that the DAO and the legal entity should be in sync. The way we're doing it now is a bit more manual. So you create your on-chain entity and there's a bunch of fields that you fill in if you want to create a legal entity. And the reason why we split it up is because there were quite a lot of people say, I don't want a legal entity. I don't feel what I do requires a legal entity, even though we felt like, oh, you know, hey, this is something that we feel strongly and it's not expensive to create a legal entity. We can see the thinking, right, for some of these people. The whole point of building something decentralized is I want it to be entirely decentralized. So we decided to split out both function. Uh, I also, some of them is basically, I want to fit my DAO into a legal entity elsewhere. So we had to kind of cater with all this different variety. And that was why we create a separate option to create the lease, to spin up the legal entity from spinning up the DAO. We talk to our users to understand when or why they need the legal entity to make sure it's the right choice for them. So why would someone pick a standard international financial center as opposed to say Wyoming or Switzerland or Marshall Islands, which is a lot more well-known? Yes, exactly. The ones you mentioned, Wyoming. So onshore issuance of tokens in the US have gotten very tricky because of security regulations. We've exposed themselves to a lot of risk 
I mean, you still have risk, right? You know, obviously if you're selling to Americans, you need to conform with American regulation, but to issue out of an entity from the US creates that complexity. On top of that, if you are truly global, you don't want to be taxed in the US for your participants who are from the rest of the world. So picking a more tax neutral zone makes more sense from that perspective. Secondly, I think the Marshall Islands haven't seen much adoption yet. Most people still tend to do, we think of it as the BCD of Dow Incorporation, BVI, Caymans, and a bit of Delaware. A, we hope would be Astana International Financial Center, but probably still a long way to get there. There's a number of reasons in terms of the right structure, in terms of trust, awareness, and all of that. Why would someone pick Astana International Financial Center is because it's a bit different, right? It's not a pure offshore hub like your BVI is. They're training 100,000 engineers. Their interest is how do we plug our engineers into global startup projects. So they have very different incentives that guide how they see their the value they provide in this space. That's one. Two is that there is a general orientation towards technology and I think interest and support for the Web3 industry that's uh, different from elsewhere. An example is National Crypto Strategy. They basically create crypto fiat rails that allow at least the exchanges to bridge into the bank in a regulated manner. So that, basically you can withdraw crypto from your ATM. I think they are running experiment around it. I think they're trying to figure out how to, because again, their goal is not to be like the Wild West, right? They do want to run a well-regulated zone, but they are thoughtful in terms of where decentralization exists and where centralization exists and where the burden of regulation should fall. So I think overall there is that thoughtfulness towards Web3 that I hope would differentiate them in the longer term vis-a-vis like an offshore island that's basically all about fee generation from creating legal entities and incorporation, right? So it's a very different take on it. So that's kind of how we see AFC and, and the role they play in this ecosystem. Just before we wrap up with the quickfire questions, one final one, how can listeners support you or help you? I think if you are looking to set up a DAO with a legal wrapper, we'd love to talk to you. If you are looking at doing enterprise or as a business, managing crypto payments, treasuries, that is something where we feel we can provide a solution to. And we also down the road looking at how do we make it so much more accessible for anyone to run a company that is engaging with crypto, storing crypto, paying crypto, and how do we bring it down to a more retail level? Well, thank you, Jeffrey, so much for your time. I'd love to end with the same five questions. Firstly, do you feel like you've found your why? Yeah, I think it's an ongoing journey, but I feel they're consistent teams. So I'll say the answer to that is yes. For me, it's about bringing value to marginalized communities. I think it's always been a consistent team. And what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind? I think for me, it's the fact that I can bring something unique to the areas I serve. So places like Latin America, Vietnam, Kazakhstan, India, these are all markets of interest just because I feel that they don't get the same set of opportunities or the same level of interest. And I feel like technologies that we are building can bring special value in all these places where governance, rule of law is weaker, trust is lower. And we hope that what we bring does help people collaborate across borders in these places. What do you think are the most important qualities of a successful person? Well, I feel it's just like being able to do something that you wake up every day, enjoying doing, and it brings value to people. It's intellectually exciting. Yeah, I think that's success in itself. And where can people go to connect with you, find out what you're doing, get involved? We have a website. It's called poco.fun, P-O-K-O 
F-U-N-D. I can also be reached on Twitter or LinkedIn. It's Jeffrey Vaji, G-O-F-F-R-E-Y underscore S-E-E. So they can find me on Twitter or they can find me on LinkedIn. And that was the end of episode 93, part two. The show notes and transcript can be found at sellthismawai.com forward slash 93. Also, if you like learning about new things, interesting people beyond this podcast to become a more interesting and well-informed person, you might also want to check out Steamy's weekly newsletter. The sign-up form can also be found in the same show notes. And stick around for next Sunday because we will be missing me. I had the tremendous privilege of being interviewed by a former Steamy podcast guest, Frida Liu, who is one of Malaysia's top radio hosts. And she turned the tables on me recently by asking me about my journey and how this podcast you're listening to even began. We kind of covered the things like the drama I encountered while hiking up to Everest Base Camp in March 2020, which, you guessed it, coincided with the onset of the global pandemic. It was a pretty dramatic experience involving a rescue horse, helicopter, charter plane from the Himalayas back to little old Kuala Lumpur. So if you'd like to learn a little bit more about me, how I ended up starting the podcast, and also end up interviewing James Corden's boss and appearing on The Lady Show with James Corden, do stick around and see you next Sunday.